Good morning to each one of you. It's good to be here, even on a Sunday morning. This is still the day that the Lord has made, amen? So we will be glad and rejoice in it. And so I'm glad to be here. I'm sorry I couldn't be here all weekend with you. I had other uh, responsibilities already, but it's, it's been a good weekend, especially since my sister Amy's been here visiting me this weekend. So I'm just glad that we can spend these last few minutes in studying God's Word together. Amen? And, um, you know, I was thinking about this final meeting. I'm glad each one of you are here. It's sort of, you, you get the, the faithful and true. You know, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved, right? And so you get those who are maybe really serious, or at least have the schedule flexibility to be here. But um, I'm just glad that we can spend this time together. There's not much more important than taking a few minutes, the last hour perhaps, and thinking particularly about what we're going to do with what we've learned this weekend. You know, as a, as a church, as Christian young people, as Adventist young people, we have, we have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of information we place in our mind, right? But sometimes we don't translate all that into changes in our lives. And that's really what's most important as we leave here this weekend. What are we going to do? How is God going to change our lives so that we're different people? from the time we've spent studying his word together. You know, I was thinking about um, the, the importance of making this kind of a decision. And um, I was remembering the story of, of Dwight Moody. You've probably heard of the evangelist Dwight Moody, right? Right here in Chicago, he was pastoring a church. And he was used by God many times to make powerful appeals and to ask people to, to make decisions. In fact, it was his habit, it was his practice to, every time he preached make an appeal and ask people to, to make a decision to follow God and to give their lives to Him. And one night, he tells a story about one night he was preaching a prayer meeting, a midweek service in his church, and he decided, you know, I always make an appeal. I always ask people to, to make decisions. Tonight, I'll just give them a break, you know. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll send them home without making this specific appeal. And so he concluded with a prayer or song. I'm not sure exactly how, but he sent his church members home and went home himself, went to bed with his family. And uh, in the middle of the night, there was a, a knock at his, at, at his door. He, awoken, he was awakened with a start. And um, he ran to the door to see who was pounding on the door. And when he opened the door, nobody was there. But the street was full of people that were running and screaming. And he looked down the street, and just a few blocks away was a wall of fire coming towards him. And Pastor Moody had enough time to grab his kids, his wife, with the clothes they had on their backs. They left the house and joined the, the crowd running from the flames. And that night, one-third of the city of Chicago burned to the ground. Ninety thousand people lost their homes. Hundreds of people died, and many of them were Pastor Moody's own church members. And he said, I will never forgive myself for not making an appeal. I didn't realize that was the last opportunity that some of my church members would have. We're living in serious times, aren't we? I remember I was in Romania, and uh, my students and I were preaching evangelistic series. And I was, uh, uh, one night, there was, uh, we, we made a, a card call. You're familiar with that, right? Where they, um, they fill out a card. And the three general options usually are something like this. Um, I've never given my life to Jesus before, but I would like to do so now, accept him as my Savior from sin. You can check that box if you would so desire. And then um, the second option is something like, I've, I once knew Jesus as my Savior, but I've wandered away. 
And um, I want to return to him. I want to rededicate my life to him. And the third option is something like, you know, um, I've, I am a Christian. Jesus is my Savior. But today I want to reconcentrate and rededicate my life more completely to him. And so <clears throat> the call was made that night and decisions were made. The cards were collected. And the next night, two of my students were uh, setting up for the meetings. And they asked, where is the lady that always sits right there? She's usually here early. Where is she? And one of the church members said, you know, uh, didn't you hear? And they said, no, what, what were we supposed to hear? And they said, well, last night she went home from the meeting. And she went to bed as normal. But she never woke up. She died in her sleep. So what do you think my students did? They went looking for those cards. And they looked through the cards until they found her card. And there they found her name. And they wanted to see which of those boxes she had checked. And they found that she had checked the box that said, I've never accepted Jesus as my Savior from sin, but I'd like to do so now. You think they were happy? Amen. Amen. God is good. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. And so it's, I, I'm just glad that we can come together for these few minutes and, and consider again the Word of God. And especially consider the decision we're going to make as we leave here today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, our hearts have been warmed this weekend as we've heard from your word. Lord, we, we want to be a generation of youth for Christ. We want to be the Davids, the Stephens, the Pauls, the Esthers of our generation. We want to see you coming in the clouds. We want to be all that you would have us to be as your young people. So today, Father, I just want to pray that in our final minutes here together that you would send your spirit. Lord, there's nothing that human lips and human words can do. But as we open your word, we pray that this spirit might t touch our hearts, that he might speak to us, that we might hear his voice and recognize it and follow it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. I believe this has uh, been the theme this weekend, right? 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 9. We're going to look at a little bit of an overview of a couple of themes in 1 Peter 1. And um, we're going to focus on one of them for a few minutes this morning. So this is the passage that we're going to be taking our thought from. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the what? The salvation of your souls. The outcome, the goal, the objective of our faith, what this verse is saying, is the, is the salvation of our souls. Now, we know there's more involved in faith than just us being saved, right? In fact, if we look at the entire chapter, we see a, a bigger picture. We see that Jesus is definitely a central part of 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 9, right? 1 Peter 1, notice with me, the, uh, the person who is the anchor of our faith. Verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, a silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of who? Of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And notice in verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised up from the dead, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope 
may be in God, right? So Jesus is the center of our faith, and Jesus is the center of 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to make that very clear first of all. Jesus is the center of our faith, and He's the center of of 1 Peter chapter 1. We find also in the next few verses, though, we find a, a reasonable, rational, concrete reason to have this kind of faith. Beginning in verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by what? By the Word of God. You see, the Bible is central to our faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so here, Peter is saying, being born again by the Word of God. That's the the modality by which we are converted, and we are saved. And notice he continues, he says, the Word of God lives and abides forever, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass that withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. Amen? The word of God is eternal. It's everlasting. It's something we can count on. It's tested. It's tried. It's true. And so we have a firm foundation for our faith. But this morning I want to look particularly at a verse early in chapter 1, which talks about the testing or the proving, the trying of our faith. Look with me back in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse, verses five, and, uh, 5 through 7. He's talking about those who have be, uh, been begotten to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time." I'd like to think we're living in the last days, amen? And I would like to think that the Esthers, the Stevens, the Pauls, the Davids of the last generation are going to reveal the salvation of God in a fuller and more complete way, a demonstration of the power of God to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. Verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The title of our study this morning, I've chosen these three words from verse 6. If need be. If need be. It's a positive verse. It says, wherein we greatly rejoice, right? But then he says, we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, there's something that I've noticed about my own heart and about my fellow, my fellow Christians. When we talk about salvation, most of us want it, right? Most of us are going to say, yes, I want to be saved. I want eternal life. I've only met a few people who said, no, I don't. I really don't want it. I remember I was preaching in Siberia, and there was a young lady, after I preached on salvation, came up to the front of the platform with, with the, those who wanted to ask questions. And through a translator, she said, do you, really, do you really want to be saved? Do you really want to live for eternity, forever? And, you know, as a growing up in a Christian world, that's sort of taken for granted, you know? I mean, we want salvation, right? And I, 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 I said to her, yes, I, I would like to be saved for, uh, forever. I would like to live forever. She said, not me. 
said, three or four hundred years would be plenty for me. Now, I had to wonder if she thought heaven was going to be like the former Soviet Union at that time. If life was going to continue interminably as it is today, to be honest with you, friends, I wouldn't want to live forever either. But there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, and God shall wipe all tears from their eyes. There's going to be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. And I want to live forever in that kind of a world. How about you? I want to live forever. You and I, if, you, if, we, if we were asked this question, do you want to live forever? I think most of us, probably all of us here today, I hope, would say, yes, I would like to live forever. But there's, there's something that comes along with that living forever. The something that comes along with that living forever is the testing and the trying and the proving of our faith. Are you with me? Because our hearts, our fallen, sinful hearts, are intricately intertwined with the world. Our affections are attached to things that are not going to live and abide forever. And in order for the end of our faith, our, the salvation of our souls to be accomplished, our affections have to be transferred from those things which are going to perish and burn to those things which are eternal and everlasting. Are you following and in order for that process to take place, there is a testing and a proving and a trying. Now, please don't, please don't think that I'm talking about the Christian faith as a negative, pejorative experience. Because here Paul, uh, Peter introduces this verse saying, wherein we greatly what? Rejoice. This is a positive experience, but he's saying, if need be, there's going to be trials and temptations and hardships. Are you with me? There's going to be trials and temptations and hardships if need be. We can observe several things from this verse. First of all, it is a cause of joy. And I'd like for you to keep your finger here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. I like this verse in Luke because Luke also gives us this, this contradiction in terms, this bit of a conundrum that uh, presents itself of joy and yet testing, proving, trying, maybe trials. Luke chapter 6 and verse 23. Luke, just, uh, Luke records Jesus' words in this way. He says, Rejoice in that day. Let's read verse 22 for, for context. Blessed are ye when men shall what? Hate you when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and do what? Leap for joy. I mean, jump up and down. Be happy, be excited, be elated. Because something is going on in your life. God is working out the end of your, of your faith. And that's your salvation. He says, leap for joy for so persecuted, uh, for in like manner did their fathers under the prophets. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, I skip. So the, 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 the uh, words of Jesus are, don't be discouraged when you go through hard times, when you go through temptations, when you go through trials, there is going to be an outcome of your faith, and that's your salvation. God is working out your salvation, and we are to cooperate with Him. And so, as I look at Bible history, I see that Bible characters... Those especially that we might um, um, maybe look at with more um, appreciation or 
admiration or respect than others. These Bible characters, they went through a process of refining and purifying. We think of Noah. Accomplished a great work for God, didn't he? He was God's man in his generation. But Noah was ridiculed for 120 years. That's not easy to take. And when you think about it, Noah had a lot of family members. He had, he had to have a large extended family. Let's, let's be realistic. I mean, when they had kids for a couple hundred years, you had lots of cousins and, and uh, nieces and nephews. And, and, and Noah not only lost his friends, he lost all of his family except for his immediate family. You know, we think of the blessing of having his sons and their wives saved with him on the, on the ark, and that was a blessing indeed. But Noah made some hard decisions. Noah was separated from that which was dear to him, that the salvation of his soul might be worked out in his experience. Abraham left his posh, comfortable home in Ur of the Chaldees, right? And he spent the rest of his life as a wanderer, as it were, living in tents. Even his closest companions didn't understand the decisions Abraham made. Sarah could not comprehend the faith and the choices that Abraham made. Joseph was sold into slavery and then imprisoned for doing the right thing. Moses forsook the wealth and pleasures of Egypt, spent 40 years tending sheep in the wilderness. How would you like that for a preparation and then he spent 40 years tending people in the wilderness, which was probably worse. <laughs> if need be, God gives you the experiences you need in order to be saved. David was hunted like an animal by King Saul. But where would all of the Psalms be if he hadn't had the experiences of suffering? Daniel, just think of Daniel. I mean, we're, we, we admire Daniel, right? We appreciate what he stood for and we want to dare to be a Daniel. But Daniel lost his family, probably watched them being killed by Babylonian soldiers. Daniel became a eunuch, not by choice. Daniel was carried off to a captive enemy country. If need be, God will do this type of thing that we might be saved. He did it for them. He'll do it for us. Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus, suffering an infirmity for the rest of his life. He called it a thorn in the flesh, right? But he recognized that this infirmity was given by God as a gift that he might be saved, if need be. Jesus himself, we read in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he, what? Suffered. Jesus himself, the, the God of the universe, came down to this earth and he suffered. Not for his salvation, but for our salvation. You see, my friends, there's something about our generation. We want this instant gratification. We, we're the microwave drive through window generation, right? We want it now and we want salvation now. And we think when we come to Jesus and we make a decision, I want to be saved, we should just be saved. That's just the way it should work. And yes, we do. And when we accept Jesus, when we accept Jesus, praise God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We can today go home knowing we have the gift of salvation and assurance in Jesus Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, right? We can have confidence in Jesus, but there's something that Jesus is going to do in the process of saving our souls, the end of our faith. He's going to separate us from those sins that would make us unhappy in heaven. He's going to transform our characters. He's going to refine the love, the unselfish agape love, which he only possesses in our own lives so that we can live like Jesus lived and be like Jesus and love like Jesus. Jesus, and that doesn't happen just overnight. That doesn't happen without some difficult experiences. That's the bottom line. And what Peter is here saying in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, we rejoice in these sufferings because they are necessary for our salvation. That phrase, if need be, tells me one thing. God does not afflict without a purpose. He only allows those things to come into our lives which are necessary for us, if need be, Right? And so when we come to Jesus, too often we're thinking, okay, now I'm going to live this dignified life. I'm now a Christian. Now I'm going to live a life without the suffering and the trials and the heartaches. And that's not always the way it happens. In fact, I would propose to you that if we're wanting to be saved in that way, we're wanting to be saved in a way that Daniel wasn't saved and Noah wasn't saved and Moses wasn't saved. And even Jesus didn't have his own character perfected. We want to be saved sitting in an easy chair with our remote still in our hands. A comfortable experience. Dignified experience. And God chooses other ways. God chooses other ways. I want to turn with you to turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of John. What's our title this morning? If need be. And I want you to see something here which I only recently saw. John chapter 9. And we're going to begin with the first verse. John chapter 9 and verse 1. Jesus passing, is passing by um, out of the temple. And it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who sinned? This man or his parents? Verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Now you remember the story, right? After this verse, keep this verse in your mind. Neither man sinned, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Keep that in mind. And just recall what happened next. Jesus then makes a natural remedy and... um, puts clay uh, and spit on his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man makes it somehow down to the pool of Siloam and comes back seen. The first time he has seen in his life. Can you imagine that experience? I mean, I just, I'm, I cannot comprehend what it would be to be an adult and to all of a sudden be able to see everything you only imagined your whole life. What a shock to see things the way they really are. And uh, as he comes back seeing, remember he began having some difficulties with the religious leaders. And um, they, tried to, they tried to make him admit that this Jesus who healed him was really not a, a worthwhile uh, teacher. He was a sinner. And, um, of course, eventually they excommunicated him. And um, then he met Jesus. Notice with me what happens when he meets Jesus. Down in verse um, down in verse. 
35. It says, When Jesus heard that they had cast him out, he found him, and he said unto him, Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Jesus said unto him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now, we know the end of the story is what? The salvation of his soul, right? the salvation of the soul. Amazingly, this man comes to a saving relationship with Jesus. What a day in this man's life. Blind to seeing, lost to saved, all through the power of Jesus. But I want us to look back at that verse 3 again. It says, neither man sinned, but that the works of God might be made manifest, right? The works of God might be made manifest. And I used to always read this verse. And I used to say, you know, that is very, very self-centered of God. It seems that way at first blush, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like, are you kidding me? Jesus is saying that this man was born blind so that some 30 years later, however many years later, Jesus could just come along sauntering out of the temple and heal him? Can you imagine the suffering that he and his family went through for that time period? Can you imagine what it was to have a son who needed to be kept from running into things, running into the fire, had to be watched all the time, finally when he could just be trusted to sit still, could be placed beside the temple to beg, and that, was be, that would be his life existence for the rest of his life? What a miserable life. That's just so that Jesus could come along and heal him? I never could understand that. Why would God create a person, allow a person to be born blind? We know that it, you know, all ultimately suffering comes from the devil, but God allowed it. That the works of God might be made manifest. Why would God allow a man to be born blind just so he could come along and heal him? It doesn't make sense to me. Until I compared this verse with John chapter 6. Look with me in John chapter 6. And verse, it's 27, I believe. Verse 29. John chapter 6 and verse 29 was the key that unlocked this story of the blind man. John chapter 6 and verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye might believe on him whom he hath sent. What is the work of God? To believe on him he whom he has sent. The work of God is not the healing of the blind. The work of God is the salvation of the soul. Are you with me? In other words, what Jesus was saying there in John chapter 9, this man was not born blind so that I could come along and work a miracle and impress people. This man was born blind because in the wisdom of heaven, God knew that the best way for the outcome of his faith to be accomplished, the salvation of his soul, the best way to get him from point A to B to the point where he would believe on Jesus Christ as we read in the end of John chapter 9, the best way for him to be saved was for him to be born blind. And that is amazing. The Bible here is teaching us that if need be, people will be born blind to save their souls. Is God good or what? Oh, but we don't like that kind of gospel. We want to be saved with all of our faculties. The work of God is not the healing of the blind. The work of God is the salvation of the soul. Are you with me? 
In other words, what Jesus was saying there in John chapter 9, this man was not born blind so that I could come along and work a miracle and impress people. This man was born blind because in the wisdom of heaven, God knew that the best way for the outcome of his faith to be accomplished, the salvation of his soul, the best way to get him from point A to B to the point where he would believe on Jesus Christ as we read in the end of John chapter 9, the best way for him to be saved was for him to be born blind. And that is amazing. The Bible here is teaching us that if need be, people will be born blind to save their souls. Is God good or what? Oh, but we don't like that kind of gospel. We want to be saved with all of our faculties, with all of our comfort, with all... You're with me, right? You understand. Our our natural heart cries for a salvation that is easy. And God says, I know the best way to save you. Are you willing to trust me? If need be, I will bring hardships into your life. If need be, I will bring health problems into your life. If need be, I will allow the enemy of souls to afflict you with temptation and trials. If need be, you will lose your friends like others who have been faithful have lost their friends. If need be, but it's all only if necessary for the salvation of your soul. If need be. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. I like this story because it illustrates the truth. The truth that there's really only one way that we can be saved. I want to share with you right now from the pen of inspiration. This is from Testimonies, volume 2, page 445. She says, I have stated before that from what was shown me, but a small number of those now professing to believe the truth would eventually be saved. Isn't that sad? She says, I've been shown that a small number, uh, it sounds like a fairly small proportion or a fraction of those who today profess to believe the truth will be saved. I think we should listen to the rest of the things she has to say, right? Because I don't want to be among those who are professing, but... Not lost, not saved, but lost in the end. A small number of those now professing to believe the truth would eventually be saved, not because they could not be saved, but because they would not be saved in God's own appointed way. You see, we want to be saved. We want the end of our faith, which is salvation of our souls. But sometimes we don't want to be saved the way God chooses to save us. Would not be saved in God's own appointed way. You remember the story of Naaman, don't you? 2 Kings chapter 5. He was what? He was a leper. A leper was, a, a leper was a, not only an outcast of society, he was, um, he was doomed to die. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fatal illness, and it was a miserable way to die. We don't need to go into all the graphic details of how the flesh rots and the nerves stop working and you burn yourself and cut yourself and get gangrenous and infections. And It was a terrible way to die. Terrible way to die. And so when Naaman faced death, he recognized that there was something he wanted more than anything else. What did he want? He wanted healing, right? Just like we want to be saved, Naaman wanted to be healed. He recognized he was a leper. 
He was willing even to go to his enemies, the Israelites, because his little servant girl, that captive maid, there's so many parts of the story could be unpacked. Talk about a witness for Jesus. Talk about agape love, doing good to those who persecute you. This little girl said, Oh, I wish he were in my country. There's a prophet there that could heal him. There's a God in Israel that can save people, my friends. And this little girl wasn't afraid to tell about that God. And so Naaman ends up, we'll pick up the story in verse 9. The Bible says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now imagine this. I give this maybe, I hope it's not bad. I have an active imagination when it comes to Bible stories, you know? And I can just see in my mind's eye this little Middle Eastern village. Because Dothan probably was a pretty small village. I don't think it was a walled town even. And so, little village, and I, I sort of imagine Elisha's house not being like the, the big mansion in the middle of town. In my mind's eye, I see Elisha as having, you know, sort of a humble dwelling, maybe on the outskirts of the town. You know, this is just my imagination, please forgive me. But a, Naaman comes, and Naaman is one of the most important people in one of the most important countries in the world at the time. I mean, he was the favorite of the king of Syria. And uh, he was very powerful. What he said happened. And he came with his whole entourage. In, in some sort of modern, if it helps you to think about what it would be like today, you know, it's sort of like maybe, you know, the, I don't know, the Secretary of State with all the bodyguards and the, you know, black limousines and SUVs pulling up at my mobile home, you know, something like that. You're just, you see this picture in your mind? He's this important man. He shows up at the door of Elijah, and the Bible says he stood with his horses and his chariot. That's the picture I get. He's an important person. Now, Naaman has some preconceptions about how God is going to heal him. He divulges them a little later. He says, I think the prophet of God, he's going to be so amazed that someone as powerful as me has come to his house. He's going to come out with eyes big like saucers. He's going to thank me for my amazing, generous gifts. And then he's going to say some abracadabra words. And... And I'm going, to, I'm going to then be healed. That's what Naaman expected. Am I telling the truth? Isn't that what the Bible says, basically? Not the abracadabra part, but the rest. <laughs> Naaman was expecting some sort of a dignified, impressive healing service. Right? And instead, Elisha does not even bother to open his front door. The humble prophet of his enemy who lived and not in the capital city. He's already been there and they didn't know anything about healing. The humble prophet in Dothan in a humble little town and the humble little house sends his servant. And 
And it only got worse from there. He sent his servant with a message that said this, Go down to that smelly Jordan River. Now we think of rivers like, you know, the St. Joseph River. Big current flowing along. This is the Middle East, guys. The Jordan River, you can almost step across. I mean, it's not a huge fresh stream. There's lots of animals around it. And he had a point when he was saying, wash in that. Go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times and you're going to be clean. The Bible tells us what happens in verse 10, verse 11. But Naaman was wroth or angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Oh, we think, well, that was pretty stupid. But friends, it's the same thing we do. We say we want to be saved. But when the answer comes and God begins to save us in His own appointed way, we typically recoil and horror and say, no, God, that's not what I meant. I didn't want suffering. I didn't want to lose my friends. I didn't want humiliation. I didn't want trials. I didn't want those things. I wanted to be saved. And we talk about the alternatives. And let me tell you, Christianity has invented many alternatives to God's own appointed way. There are many alternative rivers and alternative methods purported to be able to bring cleansing and healing. Some of them are a lot more flattering to our egos, a lot more dignified. Some of them propose that Sin isn't really something we have to be saved from at all. Leprosy is normal. There's lots of counterfeit healings for the soul. But how many ways did God give Naaman to choose from? One appointed way. And you remember the story. He had some wise servants. That's why I think Naaman was a great man. He surrounded himself by people who had their heads on straight, right? Naaman, Naaman's servants came up alongside him as he's pounding down the road again back towards Damascus. They came up riding beside him and I can sort of imagine again rather breathlessly trying to shout over the noise of the hooves, Naaman, if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? then why not do this little thing? Why not, by the way? Why is it easier for us to do some great thing in order to be saved, but not submit to God's own appointed way? Because to do a great thing allows our pride and our egos to remain intact. Why won't you do this simple thing? And Naaman went back, he turned around, he went back down to the Jordan River, and the Bible says that on the seventh time, as he came up out of the water... His flesh became as the flesh of a little child. I love that. Except you become as children, you shall not see the kingdom of God. And Naaman experienced both cleansing of the body and as he then came to trust in the Savior, the God of Israel, he experienced cleansing of the soul. Now let me ask you a question. 
as terrible as leprosy is, why do you think God allowed Naaman to have leprosy? You think it might be that the works of God might be made manifest? And I'm not talking about God's power to recover lepers. I'm talking about his power to save souls. If need be. The trial of your faith. The testing of your faith. You see, God wants to save us. But we need to be saved in his own appointed way. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, it's important that as we read these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's important that we remember who is writing them. The Apostle Paul, he refers, he alludes a little bit to his past experience in the earlier verses in chapter 4. He says, um, in verse 8, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So this is the Apostle Paul. This is the one who five times was beaten with 39 stripes. Do you understand why they beat 39? It was commonly believed the 40 stripes would kill a man. They would take, not to be graphic again, but to be, they would take leather with glass embedded in it, and each stripe would take a strip of skin off your back, and 39 stripes doesn't leave much skin left. And so 39 times that whip would come down and, and the, the, the meat would be tenderized. Five times the Apostle Paul experienced that. Not only did he, was he receiving stripes, he was imprisoned so many times, he says it was basically countless times. He was three times beaten with rods. He was stoned and left for dead. He was three times shipwrecked. He was... In weariness, hunger, cold without proper clothes, rejection by his own countrymen, opposition from his own Christian brethren. And he says in verse 17, For our light affliction, Lord, have mercy on those of us who complain. Notice, back up to verse 16. For which cause we faint not, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Does God have a purpose for the outward man being afflicted? Yes or no? If need be, He will bring those sufferings into our lives, that the inward man might be renewed. Amen? In verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. If need be, this is it's not without cause God's allow, God allows these afflictions to come to us. It's not without cause that the, the, the affections of our heart are tested very closely. It's not without cause that we may find rejection from friends or even loved ones, family members. It's not without cause. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, Paul says, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are what? They're all going to burn. The things which are not seen are eternal. So the more we keep our minds, our affections centered on things above, the more we keep our eyes on things that are eternal, the, more, the, more, the less important our light afflictions appear in our eyes. Why? Because they're all here, if need be, only as necessary. 
God is doing something to separate our hearts from sins we love. And we should rejoice and leap for joy. Rejoice and leap for joy. I remember when I was a teenager and um, I was, I was, I wanted to be saved. But really briefly, tell you how I came to know Jesus in a more personal way. I considered a reconversion of my life. One night I prayed a prayer. I was very discouraged. I saw things in my life I knew weren't right. They weren't changing. I was very discouraged. I knelt by my bed and I prayed the prayer. Lord, I want you to save me no matter what it takes. Now look out when you pray that prayer. In my mind, I was making a decision which I really meant. I really meant it. And as I was thinking about what that might mean for me, the worst possible scenarios were going through my mind. Remember, I have an active imagination. And the worst possible scenario that was coursing through my thoughts as I was praying this prayer was, I'm going to be in an accident and quadriplegic. You know, I was a very active, physical person. And to me, in my mind, the worst thing could happen was I'm paralyzed from the neck down. And I was praying In my mind, as I prayed that prayer, I was praying, Lord, if I need to be paralyzed or quadriplegic the rest of my miserable life, let it happen that I might be saved. Now, you can see that I'm not quadriplegic. God did something much worse. And I don't want to try to... I'm not here to in any way glorify my own experience or to... I can't even describe exactly what God did. But as I was praying that prayer, I was serious and I meant it. Something began happening in that room. Like the more I prayed that night, the more it seemed as though there was no hope for me. It was like the presence of God was just being withdrawn and it was too late have you ever prayed and your prayers just won't go anywhere they just bounce off the ceiling and you know they're not being heard or you feel they're not being heard and that night I experienced something that I don't think can be put into human words. I believe that I tasted a little bit of what God's wrath against sin is. When God separates hope from the sinner, we call it the second death. It's what Jesus died on the Calvary. It was so intense, it broke his heart. He died. I have never experienced a more horrible, 
horrible time in my life. I did not sleep. I don't think I slept a, a second that night. I was praying. I was crying. I was trying. God was God. You know, I found, I found out something. I found out that the only way I found any relief from this incredible burden was when I was reading the Word of God. And that gave me a little clue. I gathered a clue from that that it wasn't God afflicting my soul. If so, I should be worse off when I was reading the Word of God. I realized, and then I began remembering, this is a couple days later, I began remembering I had prayed this prayer. And I started wondering in the back of my mind, was God answering my prayer? I experienced such a sense of hopelessness on account of sin that after that experience, let me tell you, I wanted nothing to do with sin. As I continued reading the Word of God, as I continued claiming the promises of the Word of God, my faith gained the victory. Praise God. I believed that Jesus could save even me. Hallelujah. But I didn't want to have anything to do with that stuff that separates me from Him. I hated sin. Well, sometimes I wish I could have that experience more often. But I wonder what would happen if GYC were to pray the prayer, Lord, save me, whatever it takes. If need be, through trials. If need be, through loss. You think God would answer that prayer? Think he would hear it? Is it God's will to save us? The problem is we aren't willing to be saved in God's appointed prayer, God's appointed way. The prayer of our hearts needs to be, God, save me in your appointed way. I don't care what it is. Are you with me? Save me in your appointed way, no matter what that way is. No matter what loss I might suffer, I'm going to rejoice because it's coming from your hand. It's only because it's necessary for my salvation. That the works of God might be manifest in my life. The salvation of my soul is the end of my faith. How many of you like, would like today to pray that prayer? You'd like to say with me, God, I'm going home. I'm going home and I want this not just to be head knowledge. I want it to be translated into an experience with you. Save me no matter what it takes. If that's your desire, just stand with me. We're going to pray. If you want to say to God today, I want to be saved no matter what it takes. Work out your salvation. and I give you permission to work in my life in your appointed way. You know, there's another prayer I wonder if we should be praying. Sometimes when I look at our church, even when I look at our, our young people, when I look at our campuses and where we've, we're coming from, our churches, our homes, 
I remember that we need a revival and a reformation. Would you agree with me this morning? Revivals and reformations are not some abstract thing that God brings when He wishes. They come as a result of prayer and a result of certain circumstances and conditions. And I wonder if there's someone here that wants to pray another prayer. Wants to say, Lord, work out a revival and a reformation in my home, in my church, on my campus, no matter what it takes. There could be some things happen to shake us up. But we can rejoice even those. Because it's that the works of God might be made manifest. It's only if necessary, if need be. But are we, willing to, are we willing to be that bold? Are we willing to say, God, I give you permission to work in my life, that which I need to be saved, and to work in my home, in my community, in my church, in my school, on this campus, that which is necessary for revival? Are we willing to say that? Is that your desire today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, if need be, you will bring suffering and hardship and trials, things we don't always recognize and understand, because this is your appointed way in separating us from the sins we love. Oh, Father, we want our affections to be set on things above, not on things on this earth. We want to see the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and to remember that if need be, He will bring the trial of our faith to purify us and help us to rejoice in whatever He brings. Father, You've seen the hearts, You've seen the hands, You've seen the, those who have stood today and have said, we want... We want to give you permission to work in our own lives, no matter what it takes. Lord, help us to be such quick learners and such willing learners. It doesn't take such drastic methods. Lord, you've also seen the prayers of the hearts of those here this morning who are saying, Lord, we're going to pray. We're going to begin praying for revival and reformation in our campus, in our home, in our churches. We're going to pray for it. We're going to give you permission to allow even difficult times to come if that's the way that the works of God might be manifest in our school, in our community. Oh, Father, these are not trifling words we are praying today. These are serious words. These are serious decisions. We give you permission to save us, not in the way that we would choose to be saved, but in the way that you choose to save us. We give you permission to work in our lives in such a way that we may be separated from those things which are not heavenly material. We ask that along the way we might have the peace of God in our hearts, the joy of God in our souls, that we might be leaping and rejoicing for joy that we've, become, we've been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. Lord, there are those today who are praying this prayer who may have friends turn against them. Strengthen their hands, strengthen their hearts. There are those praying this prayer today who may suffer tragedy or loss. Help them to see that it's only in love you allow, if need be, these things to take place in their lives. Lord, help us to go back determined to be surrendered to you, 
no matter what you choose to do and how you choose to work in our lives, that we might be saved in your appointed way and be the instruments of blessing others as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.